Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The Peter Schiff Show. I was listening this morning to the press conference given by Mario Draghi. The ECB held a conference. There were a lot of reporters in attendance. They were asking questions. And the euro currency rose uh, early in the conference. And in fact, after the conference ended, the euro made new intraday highs before surrendering about half of those uh, gains Uh, As of right now, I'm recording uh, the podcast and the euro uh, is up, but about half as much as it was on the highs. Right now, I'm looking at a euro of 123.80. I think I saw it up around 124.50 or something like that after the conference ended. But the disappointment, right? And so it was people were disappointed. And so the euro went up, right? The disappointment was that Draghi wasn't more forthright with, yes, we're doing QE for sure. And here's when it's going to start. And these are the particular sovereign bonds we're going to buy. He was still being evasive and he was still saying that, well, if the circumstances uh, are right, uh, if we feel it's necessary, then maybe we'll do it, right? There's no guarantees. And one thing he was asked about was, did it have to be unanimous? Would a decision to do QE have to be unanimous? And he said no, meaning that we just need a consensus, a majority, so no one country, i.e. Germany, is going to stop us. But, you know, Germany isn't just one country. Germany has a lot of weight. And my guess is if the Bundesbank doesn't want QE, it's not going to happen. It's not like it's going to happen over their objections. So they're going to have to convince the Germans that QE is necessary and that QE is helpful, right? And I think that's going to be a very difficult hurdle to overcome. And because I don't think they're going to get consensus that doesn't include Germany. But, you know, they didn't really press it that much. They just simply let them get away with it. But I think if they would have asked uh, that question, uh, you know, it, it would be very difficult. To do that. So I think if people are happy about the fact that, well, they don't need to convince Germany, they can do it over Germany's objection. 
I would not jump to that conclusion. But there were a lot of very interesting uh, points that were brought up that, of course, the mainstream media, even particularly the people in attendance, uh, didn't really pick up on. Otherwise, maybe somebody would have asked a, uh, a question, a more pertinent, relevant question, a more insightful question than the ones that were asked. But he got a lot of questions about QE. And one question, uh, oh, actually, before I even get to that, he talked about the mandate that the ECB has. And according to the way Draghi expressed his mandate, it is to have inflation close to, but under 2%. That's their mandate. We need to have inflation that is close to, but less than 2%. Now, what kind of a mandate is that? I mean, first of all, I know that the mandate was always to have inflation below 2%. There was no caveat that it had to be almost 2%, but below it. Because what kind of central bank would have such a ridiculous mandate? First of all, I would have liked to ask Mario Draghi, please define what an inflation rate that is close to, but just under 2%. I mean, what what is that? I mean, does that mean 1.9%? Is that the mandate? Because, I mean, would 1.8% be close to but just under 2% or is that too far away? Do you have to be 1.9 or do you have to be 1.95, right? What is close to but just under 2%? And let's say he actually could say something. Well, 1.8. Okay, so 1.7, if you had 1.7, you would need to do quantitative easing to get it up to 1.8. Well, obviously, well, no, I mean, 1.7, I guess, would be okay. All right, well, what about 1.6? See, the point is, I think where they are right now, even though uh, if you go backwards for 12 months, according to the way they measure consumer prices in the Eurozone, prices are up four-tenths of 1%, which is as low as they've been in many, many years. But still, I would argue that if your objective is to be under 2%, they're there right now. I mean, 0.4 is not too far away from 1.9. I mean, in the whole scheme of things, I mean, if you have to get consumer prices to rise under 2%, well, how much could they rise or fall? Because what if prices went down 5% one year? Well, that wouldn't be just under 2%. I mean, obviously, minus 5 is quite a bit below 2. But what about minus 1? I mean, is minus 1, you know, wouldn't you say, yeah, I guess, you know, minus 1 is under 2%, but not, you know, it's kind of close to it. See, the point is, it's, it's, it would be ridiculous to have a mandate to have inflation at 1.9 or 1.8 because no central banker can fine-tune consumer prices to that degree. And what if your mandate is to have inflation close to but under 2%, right? And right now, you're at a half a percent, right? And even then, you know, they know that that's because of the drop in energy prices. So throw that out. You know, you're you're probably a little bit higher than 1%, but let's say it's 1%. Your inflation is at 1%, and you're like, oh, well, our mandate is to be just under 2%. Well, just be happy with minus one. I would say, you know, mission accomplished. We're we're achieving our mandate. We're below 2%. We're at 1%. That's pretty close. Because what if you decide, well, you know, we need to get it up to 1.9, and what happens if you do QE, and then inflation goes up to 2.2 or 2.5. Well, you're no longer under 2%, right? And if you have to be under 2%, even 2.1% would mean that you've lost your mandate. 
it would appear to me if your mandate is to stay below 2%, right, but close to, but below, I would think 1% inflation is fulfilling your mandate, but 2.1 is not, because 2.1 is not below 2%. He didn't say that their mandate is to have an inflation rate that's around 2%. He said it needs to be below And the reason it needs to be below is because that's the real mandate. Their real mandate is to have inflation of less than 2%. This close to or near 2% is just something that they just made up, right? But the reality is they've already fulfilled their mandate, and there's no point in trying to create more inflation. But they're just trying to pretend, right? This is like quantitative talking, right? They're going to keep the market thinking that they're going to do this quantitative easing, even though they're probably not going to do it. But just talking about doing it has already lowered the value of the euro, and which is going to push up eurozone inflation. Not that that's going to help, not that that's going to stimulate the European economy any more than inflation is going to stimulate the Japanese economy or the U.S. economy. But you still have everybody expecting uh, the Europeans to do QE. And I just think it's likely that they're not going to do it. It doesn't mean that it's impossible that they will do it, but I still think the odds favor that they'll talk about doing it, but they won't actually do it. And another indication that, you know, they really can't do it or they're having a hard time is Draghi admitted that it would not necessarily be as easy as it was to do QE in the UK or Japan or the United States because he pointed out When the U.S. does QE or Japan, they just buy sovereign bonds, right? Or the U.K., they just buy uh, gilts. But he pointed out that the Eurozone is not just one country. It's a collection of sovereigns. And so, therefore, he doesn't know what to buy. Which sovereign credit am I going to buy? And he said that we need to be careful and protect the balance sheet of the ECB, Meaning that he doesn't want to just load up on Greek bond or, or or Spanish bonds or Italian bonds. Those are, of course, are the bonds that everybody wants him to buy. But when he's saying we need to p- protect the balance sheet of the ECB, he has to look at the credit quality of the bonds that he's buying. And they're saying we don't know what to buy. Well, how could they have a QE program planned if they don't even know yet what they're going to buy? See, it seems to me if they can't identify specifically what they're going to buy— They haven't planned on QE yet. It's just a maybe we'll do it. Because if they were going to do it, they would have to know what they were going to buy. Since they don't know what they're going to buy, they haven't yet made a decision to actually do it. Yet everybody believes that it's a foregone conclusion that it is going to happen. In fact, one of the interesting comments that he made uh, in response to a question was that the reason they were considering QE was because it's worked so well in other countries, like the United States. And again, I think it is very premature for anybody, certainly uh, uh, Mario Draghi, to conclude that QE was a success in the United States because it wasn't. It is a complete failure. It's just that the, the, the gravity of the failure isn't apparent yet because the effects haven't fully worn off. It's like you don't know how screwed up you are. Like maybe you don't know how much pain you're in until the Novocaine wears off, right? And, and when it does, then maybe you realize, you know, how much pain you have. And, and then you need, you know, you need some painkillers or something. And so the QE that we did 
uh, made us oblivious to the pain of the disease getting worse uh, because we were all operating under the euphoric effects of uh, cheap money and the, uh, you know, the increase in the stock market and the real estate market and the way it makes us feel good. Right. I think, you know, who um, I forget who described I think it was maybe it was Alan Greenspan, but maybe he was quoting somebody else uh, the way he described uh, inflation. He just he, he compared it to like peeing in your bed. He says it feels good while you're doing it. But then, you know, you've got a real mess on your hands. Right. So, yeah, QE. Yes, it feels good when you're doing the QE. But of course, in the end, when, you know, you know, you've you've peed in your bed and now you're lying in, 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 in sheets full of piss. Right. And that's, you know, maybe a good way to describe the U.S. economy and what it's going to be like uh, when, you know, all these QE effects wear off. And so it's premature for the ECB to say, hey, we want to emulate the United States. Wait a while. See how it's really worked. You know, wait till we try to stop. You can't really judge the effects of QE until you stop it. And we're, we, we've, we've tapered it down, you know, and now I think the effects are already wearing off. That's why I think the bloom is already coming off the U.S. recovery rose. That's why I think we keep getting all this weak economic data that nobody wants to accept, right? No matter how bad it is, they keep on making excuses, you know, whether it's just the recent poor holiday sales over uh, the 4th of July, not the 4th of July, the uh, Thanksgiving four-day weekend or Cyber Monday, you know, even though sales were down three, 11%, excuse me, for the four-day Thanksgiving weekend, uh, people are saying, well, it's because people are not going to the stores, right? They decide they don't want to deal with the crowds and they don't need the discounts because the economy is better. Well, the, the shoppers were only down by 4%, which is still a significant decline. 4% fewer people went to the stores to shop, but sales were down 11%. So you can't make the argument that sales are down because people, you know, decide they didn't want to deal with the madness of uh, of uh, and the crowds of Black Friday. They went there. They went to the stores. They just didn't buy as much stuff. And if you're already there, if you're already in a mall and you're already dealing with the crowds, right? And and you've already given up your, you know, your day with your family. Why not do all of your spending? Why not take advantage of the great markdowns while you're there? See, it makes much more sense to me that the reason that people spent less money was because they had less money to spend. It wasn't that they wanted to wait and spend later. They were already in the store. They just bought what they can afford because they're spending more money on electricity and food and, and their cable TV and their health care and all the necessities cost more and they've got a lot of debt so they can't splurge as much as they could in, in, in prior years. But nobody wants to accept that. Everybody wants to stay with the recovery narrative because they're so wedded to it, right? And, you know, so for Mario Draghi to just join the club of premature, you know, accepting the fact that QE worked in the United States, it didn't. We are in much more trouble as a nation because we did QE. Yes, had we not done QE, it might have been more painful or it would have been more painful in the short run, but it would have been constructive pain and we would have been dealing with the problem. Instead, We've medicated the economy so we don't feel the effects as the problem gets worse. And that is all going to come to a head probably next year uh, when we have to launch QE5. And again, you cannot claim success to this program until you successfully end it. And in fact, it's not just ending QE that where you can claim victory.
You've got to shrink your balance sheet back down to where it was before you started. Because remember, the whole pretense was that this is all temporary. We're not monetizing the debt, right? We're buying all these bonds while there's an emergency. And then when the emergency is over, we're going to sell all these bonds and shrink the balance sheet. So you can't really say that QE has been a success until the Fed winds its balance sheet back down below a trillion. (laughs) Good luck with that. That's impossible. So you can pretend, oh, let's emulate uh, the United States because it works so well. I don't think they're going to want to emulate us when they realize how lousy it worked. But probably one of the most interesting comments of all the comments that were made, uh, Mario Draghi was asked about the specific assets that, that he would buy under a QE program. Because again, they, there's so many different assets that they theoretically could buy. And the woman that asked the question only mentioned two. She said, well, are you thinking of buying U.S. Treasuries? Are you just, did you discuss buying gold? Those are the only two assets that this particular reporter mentioned. And so Mario Draghi answered, and he said, we discussed buying all assets except gold. On what sort of assets they should be included in QE? My sense is that my recollection is that we discussed all assets but gold. So in other words, they discussed buying all assets, all of them. There wasn't a single asset they didn't discuss buying with a lone exception of gold. Now, first of all, he didn't say we discussed buying gold and decided not to. This subject apparently never even came up, right? Nobody even said, well, what about buying gold? And well, that'd be, oh, that's not buying any gold. We didn't even discuss it, right? We didn't discuss buying gold, but we did discuss buying every other asset. Really? Every other asset? I mean, how, I mean, there's lots of assets. Did they did they discuss buying stamps or baseball cards or other memorabilia? You know, I mean, what did they, did they discuss buying condominiums uh, in Portugal? You know, or you know, are they buying uh, you know junk bonds uh, in, in in Greece? I mean, think about all the risky assets. I mean, are they going to buy stocks? Right? Um, you know, what kind of stocks are they going to buy? I mean, are they going to buy in Europe? Are they buy the United States? Are they buy in Japan? I mean, think about all the various assets. I mean, are they going to buy, you know, automobiles? Well, I guess that's not really an asset, but I guess uh, real estate. And I said condos. I mean, you know, all, there's a whole bunch of things. They discussed everything under the sun, with the exception of gold. I mean, the, the one asset that they should be buying is the only asset they didn't even discuss buying. And apparently it's the only asset they won't consider buying. There isn't any asset that they're willing to buy except, except gold. And they said, he said earlier that we're concerned about our balance sheet. Well, if you're concerned about your balance sheet, why would you want to buy all these risky assets? And why would you not consider buying something like gold, which is far less risky than a lot of the other assets that apparently the ECB is considering purchasing? Now, I think, you know, obviously what the ECB wants to do when they print money is they want to prop up asset prices. But the one asset price they don't want to prop up is gold because, of course, they want the price of gold to go down. They want the price of stocks to go up. They want the price of uh, bonds to go up. They want real estate prices to go up. The last thing they want is gold prices to go up, right? Because gold prices going up shines a light on the incompetency and the ineffectiveness of their policies, because it shows that the euro is losing value in terms of gold, right? And it shows that, you know, this is the result of inflation. Gold is a barometer. 
you know, you know, it's like your report card. If the price of gold is soaring and you're a central banker, it means you've done a lousy job. That's what Alan Greenspan himself used to say. He said he looked at the price of gold. They want to know if he was doing a good job. And I remember years ago, and this is when gold was 300. Alan Greenspan would say, well, if the price of gold is near 400, that means I've been too easy and, you know, I'm not doing a good job and I need to tighten up, right? Well, look where gold is now. But he looked to gold as a measure of whether or not he was being an effective Fed chairman. If the price was too high, uh, or even, I think even he said too low, he wasn't doing his job right. So the last thing uh, Draghi wants is a big run-up in the price of gold. Now, that's going to happen anyway, whether he wants it or not, but he doesn't want to contribute to it. So he's basically saying, look, we'll buy anything but gold. So first you had Switzerland voting not to buy gold, and now you have the ECB saying, look, we'll buy everything but gold. Why? I mean, (laughs) now, of course, this is music to the ears of the central banks that want gold, like Putin in Russia. That's the only thing he's buying. The Chinese are buying gold. A lot of other central banks want gold. They don't want all the other crap that Draghi apparently is prepared to buy with all the euros that theoretically he may print. But again, this is all about talking up because he wants to talk up the assets. He wants people thinking, gee, which assets might Draghi buy? And we want to buy them first, right? That's where he wants to put the put beneath, or he wants to say, hey, I got your back. You know, you never know what assets we might buy, so you better buy them, because if you buy them and then we do QE, you'll make money selling them to us. But he's saying the one thing we won't buy is gold. So if you were thinking about buying gold because you think the ECB might do QE and buy gold, don't buy any, right? He's trying to talk down the gold market at the same time he's trying to talk up every other market. But for my money, right, I would buy the one thing that they're saying they're not going to buy. Because they're going to buy all the crap. They're going to buy the stuff that they need to buy to prop up. Gold doesn't need to be propped up. If anything, they're trying to suppress it. They're trying to keep its real value for emerging. You don't want to buy what central banks are trying to pop up, prop up, because that means that you're buying something that's been artificially inflated by a central bank, right? You're overpaying for the asset. You want to buy the asset that the central banks are trying to suppress, because that means you're getting a good deal. You're buying something at less than it's than it's worth. And that would be the case for for gold. Hey, one more thing I want to uh, mention to everybody, if you haven't heard about this, I am uh, selling copies of my father's book, The Biggest Con. We are running out of them. I still have copies left. We've got quite a few orders, uh, but I still have more to go. And I know we sent out an email blast uh, the other day and we had the wrong URL. The correct URL to go to to order my father's book is shiftbooks.com. Just my last name, S-C-H-I-F-F, books.com, to get a copy of The Biggest Con. It's the best economic book I ever read. It's certainly the most influential one uh, for me, and a lot of people who have read it over the years always comment to me on what a fantastic book that is. I think it's better than any of the books I've written myself. And, um, you know, it's 350, 400 pages of real wisdom written by my dad. Every word he wrote himself, no help, no word processor on a typewriter. And so much of what he wrote back in the early 1970s is coming true today. A lot of his forecasts already came true in the 70s, but more of his forecasts are coming true right now. But you can see, you know, where I learn my economics, why I think the way I do. And as I said before, whenever I read that book myself, I hear my father's voice speaking to me, and I've reread it. And in fact, I may reread it again, because almost every time I read it, I learn something new. 
Um, and so if I learn something reading it, uh, imagine how much uh, everybody else is going to learn reading it for the first time. So it's the biggest con. We're selling it for $30 a copy while they last. And I am autographing them all personally. So they're autographed by me. I wish it could be my dad, but he's in jail, so he can't autograph them. Uh, but these are brand new copies of the book. They were printed many, many years ago, but they've been in storage uh, for a long time. So they're brand new, out of the box, crisp. Uh, and there's not that many of those. I know they're selling them on eBay uh, for $90 a piece, uh, the new copies. We're selling them for $30. Um, so it's a good deal while they last. Again, it's first come, first curve, serve. Also, if you haven't bought a copy of The Kingdom of Malts, I still have those left. Those are $25 a copy. That that book, The Kingdom of Malts, was originally part of The Biggest Con, but Random House took it out. They when they when In the editing process, they said, you know, they got rid of it. But my dad always loved the story, and he eventually, in 1980, uh, wrote that book, illustrated from what was taken out of The Biggest Con. And the original printing was in 1980. Uh, he printed them again, I think, in 1999 or 2000, 1998. Those are the books I have. So they've been in boxes since 1999, sealed. Uh, so again, they're in great shape, even though you know they're 15, 16 years old. They're brand new. And I'm autographing those too. And again, those were selling for you know upwards of $100 or so on uh, the internet. But again, $25 for autographed copies of The Kingdom Malt. If you want to get the Christmas special, um, both books for 50 bucks, And you can order at shiftbooks.com a copy of The Biggest Con and a copy of The Kingdom of Malts for $50. And if you order them now, uh, they will be shipped out before Christmas. So you can give them as a gift. You can give the gift of dollars or you just have some extra, extra copies for yourself. Today's financial advisors behave like pro-wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies.